It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. Well, today being Martin Luther King Day, we thought that we'd start the show by honoring him by playing an excerpt of one of his many inspirational and profound speeches that he gave. It also ties in with the first guest of the show today, B. Kwame, who is on the show talking about the importance of Martin Luther King to black Canadians. Right now, though, here is Martin Luther King. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later... The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men Yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time (laughs) to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time (laughs) to make justice a reality for all of God's children. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream 
that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Yes. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. From every state and every city we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. The incredible and unmistakable Martin Luther King here on Moment of Truth on Martin Luther King Day. We'll be right back with our first guest, B. Kwame, and the importance of Martin Luther King to black Canadians. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And just as a reminder, you can also hear Moment of Truth on all of your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Well, it is a pleasure to welcome to our show writer, radio host, TV personality, and public speaker, just to name a few, B. Kwame. And, uh, you know, we're, we're here talking to you about something that you wrote about why Martin Luther King Jr. is important yes. to and, and matters to black Canadians, which is really interesting and, of course, very timely. First of all, I want to thank you for the article that you wrote. You know, when I learned that you were a writer, uh, obviously shows up in this article because it was very eloquently written. And well, I want to thank, thank you. you for sharing the thoughts. And, you know, thank people you. can find that article. It's uh, under locallove.ca. Um, how would you like to start introducing Canadians to the importance of, of what you point out about why Martin Luther King Jr. matters to black Canadians. Right. Well, 
you know, I think that the first thing to do is is definitely to to pay respects and give honor to the work that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to see someone. And, you know, I'm saying see kind of through like a historic lens sure. because I was not alive at that time. Yes. But, you know, to be able to see and and read and understand um, even from kind of this this distance through time of what he went through, the work he was trying to do, the the transformations he was having, um, even as he did his work. And, and to see how it has continued to reverberate, you know, decades later, mm-hmm. it definitely speaks to, to his impact. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I start off the article talking about uh, hearing his voice, I think, for, for one of the first times over the PA system at school mm-hmm. as, you know, Black History Month was being ushered in in, in February that year and, and being really taken by that. And but what's really interesting, and I think where we kind of have to go with it from this point is to understand that, like you said, that, you know, that little point that we can grab about the dream of four little children living in a nation where they won't be judged by the color of their skin, Mm -hmm. but the content of their character. There is so much more to investigate and and to interrogate with his work that still matters today. So I think it's really interesting that we can read things that he wrote and said in the 60s and see how they apply in 2021 Mm. and see the work that we still have to do. So I think that he's not just aspirational. And I think that's where a lot of people leave him is, is in this, uh, you know, kind of this passive aspirational thing, like Martin Luther King Jr. said he had a dream. So we've got to, we'll, we'll figure out how we get there eventually. <laughs> but he kind of gave us the handbook of, yeah. of things that we need to consider and things right. that we need to do. And, and for black Canadians and for, for non-black folk as well, which I think is really important too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting you know, uh, I guess sadly interesting that Mm -hmm. we are looking at this and still talking about this. And as you say, it it still hasn't come to fruition. And and that's the the sad part of that. But going back to, uh, as you you pointed out, the first time you heard his his voice in that that speech that he made, Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about the way he spoke. Oh, oh my goodness, that just moves you to your core. It really does. Like, you know, there are just some people and and even before I I even got into a career of anything, you know, public facing media and, and public speaking and all those types of things, I would always just be so taken with people who are either powerful or interesting Mm. orators and and just understanding kind of the mechanisms of how people speak and how people Mm. get a point across. Mm. And I think that like you said, there's such emotion and gravity in the Mm. things that he says that you have to pay attention. And I think that that is, you know, that is such a, a blessing that we have now to be able to still be held by his voice and to still be held by the way he was able to say things. And, and obviously the content of what he was explaining at the same time and to just be able to, to look at that. And again, use that as kind of a roadmap of even now in, in this time, how do we, ensure that our message is powerful? How do we ensure Mm. that our message is gripping? How do we ensure that when we speak, 
you know, someone is listening to us. So I think that those are also additional lessons he gave us, whether he meant to or not. But, you know, with his his history as, as a reverend and a preacher, that's that's where some of that comes from, right. that emotion sure. of being able to pull from that. Right. So, yes. yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating for sure to just see how as soon as you hear that voice, you just stop and you yeah. listen. You do. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's great that you pointed out, you know, his background and where he was able to pull that that from to some degree. But when you hear that, when you hear the the, the powerful uh, presentations that he made, and I I almost don't want to say a speech because it wasn't like a speech, right? He he, he embodied those words. They they were so much more than just a speech. For sure, he he totally embodied them with action behind the words. And I think that's another thing that lends to the power of who he was and the power of the work that remains is, you know, that he wasn't just a man who just got called up there every once in a while to say a few things, right? He was, he was, yeah, he was living this. And I think that, that what's, it also plays into uh, in, in 1963. And I I referenced this in the article, he uh, wrote something called letter from a Birmingham jail. And I, Mm -hmm. I feel like that is another piece of his literature that people definitely need to pay attention to. And that will really help to understand the current moment because he literally wrote that from jail. You know, he, uh, so, you know, we can look at his, his history and see how he put his body on the front line, um, how Mm -hmm. he, created space for other people to be able to uh, to do the same and and to make change and where he was able to use um, even the privileges that he had with with his education and his cadence and the way he was able to connect people and and use that to amplify others so he definitely showed the power of you know walking the walk and not just talking the talk mm. which is another thing to take away too I guess the other thing we need to remember not only about Mar- Martin Luther King but you know, you even point out, of course, and we'll come around to this, is talking mm-hmm. about some of the the great uh, black Canadian women, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we and we'll get to them because any of these people, given the time they were and doing the things that they were doing, trying to raise awareness, what they were up against, you know, and to think that you, you get out and you do that. Re- in spite of re- all of in that. In spite yeah. of it all. The, it's, yeah, it's just really... You know, and, and there's so many layers to it. I, I feel like, you know, there are a lot of different films and documentaries and, and things that spell out and, and kind of unravel the, the onion of what this whole existence was for him. Uh, but, you know, without fail, I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. And mm. without fail, when, uh, you know, MLK Day arrives in the U.S., it's always very interesting that, you know, you'll see different corporate entities tweeting and, and marking the recognition of the day. And the FBI always tweets and without fail, people always respond back and say, um, but didn't you also send him death threats? How are you recognizing the work that he did mm-hmm. when your institution was uh, one mm-hmm. of those things that he was up against? So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's so much more for people to learn about this man and his work and, and the life that he lived. But you're very right just to be able to continue to push forward in, uh, you know, in spite of all of that, because of the belief of something bigger and something more important um, is, is really fascinating. And I think it's an important thing to note too. A lot of people will say, uh, you know, he, he gave up his life. He died for uh, racial justice and and fighting for equity. Mm -hmm. And while I'm sure that he understood that this could have been, uh, you know, a consequence of the work he was doing, it, it, 
he he did not take his own life. So I think we have to remember mm-hmm. that even in the the work that he was doing, why did he end up dying so young? Mm-hmm. He was killed. And mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we don't just think about a, him making a sacrifice. We have to kind of rephrase it as somebody that was taken from us in their prime. Right. And and think about what that means too. You wanted to to talk about not only, you know, the other things that he mentioned, but also how this reflects in terms of the other the other people that have also done great mm-hmm. things, and in particular, you mentioned some Canadian women. Oh, definitely. Yeah, because what I think is really interesting is when we think about his impact, you know, back in, I think it was in 1967, he actually did a CBC Massey lecture. Yes. And he praised Canada, you know, recognizing Canada as, you know, the the promised land through the Underground Railroad Mm -hmm. where um, enslaved people, you know, found their freedom. And while we know that to be true, that in a way, when, when I read his Massey lecture transcript, it kind of deflated me a bit because I thought, wow, you know, racism exists in Canada. Slavery had existed in Canada. So it just kind of seemed like it perpetuated this idea that Canada was this racial utopia. But I think that, uh, and you know, that just goes to show not only what's been hidden, um, the, the histories that have been hidden from Canadians, but the histories that have happened here that have been hidden from everywhere else because Martin Luther King Jr. didn't even really know, or I'm sure if he did, maybe that speech would have been a bit different. Mm. But I think the the plus of that has been the way that maybe directly or indirectly, he's inspired people to speak up and and showcase their activism here and showcase the work they've done. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I, I named a few people like one is a woman by the name of Sharona Hall, and she was one of the co-founders of an activist group called the Black Action Defense Committee, which was founded in uh, in the 80s after a spate of police shootings of unarmed black men. Mm. And the Black Action Defense Committee actually was the organization that provided, uh, you know, documentation and research and a paper to the Ontario government and created their own task force, which created the SIU. So we only have the SIU in Ontario because of the Black Action Defense Committee Mm. saying that police cannot um, be the ones to to prove or deny the the innocence of other police. Um, So we need kind of this overarching body. So Sharona Hall was one of the co-founders of that group that led activist work in Toronto, in Ontario as a whole, and, and made changes not just here, but across the country as well. And so I think that she is somebody who we don't hear enough about, and she is somebody who we definitely need to know more of. Another person who I mentioned, another woman particularly, she is she's somebody alive today. Her name is Natasha Henry, and she is an educator in the GTA who has done an incredible amount of work to um, address the lack in, in Canadian curriculum around black history and has created special curriculum that is posted and available for educators during February for black history month and any time of the year, because this is history, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. 365 days. Um, 
but you know her work has been so critical to uncovering a lot of these things that I never learned about in school and I've only learned in my adulthood mm. about some of uh, Canada's black history both the the positives and the contributions that we made right. that I never knew about right. and and kind of some of the negatives so Sharona Hall has passed away um, but her legacy remains and I think that's something that shows up in someone like Natasha Henry kind of continuing to push work forward mm. Great words that you're sharing there about uh, the work that people have done. And, you know, I, I can't help but think about, if you don't mind me saying this, the, the parallels mm-hmm. to the Indigenous mm-hmm. community and, and the things that were sure. not learned about the Indigenous community. And, and it, 100%. you know, it, it's really interesting just to hear that. There's so much to, to learn from and benefit from. Uh, 100%, yeah. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also catch us on any of your podcasting platforms that you like to listen to as well. My guest is B. Kwame, and she is a writer radio host, TV personality, and public speaker. And, um, you know, uh, B, I couldn't help but uh, be taken a little bit by the fact that your your storytelling began, I guess, quite early um, in elementary <laughs> school. <laughs> it did. It did. You know, it's, it's a funny story that I've I've loved to write since since I was tiny and I ended up winning a writing competition in elementary school where I got to have lunch with uh, the Robert Munch, (laughs) who (laughs) remains one of my favorite children's book authors and is now, you know, my my children's favorite uh, author as well. And I still remember the day we, we got to have a special reception. There was a winner from each grade. We had a reception in the library and it was a big deal because we actually got to eat in the library and you were never allowed to bring food in the library. I had a grape juice box and a cheese sandwich and I sat on his left hand side and he read my story and he told me that it was in, it was incredible wow and I remember going home and just being like you know cloud nine like yeah. my favorite author has said that something I wrote was incredible yeah and uh I thought okay that's it I'm gonna be a writer <laughs> and it's it's really funny because you know my parents are super supportive now but I think that they immigrated to Canada from Jamaica and they thought, okay, we're here for, you know, for some stability and a good life and you've Mm. got access to a good education and you need Mm. to get a good, stable job. And writing just seems like something that you do for fun when you're done your homework. (laughs) And I thought, you know what, you might be right. And I think part of me accepting that was the fact that I, I didn't really see anyone in any of the literature that we read or whenever we had um, authors come to school or, you know, anything like that. And I didn't see anybody that looked like me who Mm. was an author. Mm. So I didn't really fight that. I thought, okay, maybe this is just something fun for me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I kind of followed in my mom's footsteps. She's a nurse and, uh, you know, shout out to her. She's actually working. She retired and came back to work um, Mm. once the pandemic started. But uh, yeah, I went into kind of education and a career in healthcare and through, you know, all kinds of wild and wonderful things found my way back to writing. And and here I am. So I I definitely owe Robert Munch a lot. (laughs) That's great. What a great story. <laughs> Appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Um, so you say, you know, a long story, but but you did end up back in this and you did end up, uh, you know, using all of the skills that you have. Uh, freelance writer, you're doing all kinds of things now. You started mm-hmm. blogging in 2006. Yes, yes. So and that was really something that I just did for myself. Mm-hmm. My first few blogs that that I started were really just almost like, 
digital diaries for me. I didn't share them with anybody. Mm. And they were just fun for me to kind of tinker around with, you know, coding and different things right. and, and kind of getting to some of that writing. But it was in 2011, uh, I was working a pretty stressful job supervising um, group homes and community programs for adults mm. with uh, brain injury and developmental disability. Mm. And I just knew I needed to come home and do something different. So mm. I thought, you know what, I, I, I feel that pull to just do something creative. Mm. So I started another blog again, didn't expect to share it with anybody. And I happened to share a post with some friends and they're like, this is so great. You should, you know, you should post this, put it on Facebook. And I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to care. And <laughs> so I thought, all right, let me put it out there. And, you know, wheels started turning and, and Twitter became a thing. And I started sharing on there and, you know, you, you kind of build these networks with folks and right. people are, you never, know who's looking at your things yeah. when uh you know you put work out there i mean right. i didn't expect that i would be doing this interview with you today off yeah. of this work so you never know <laughs> where things go but uh but it developed this is something really great so how would you how would you characterize your writing and your interest in writing and mm -hmm. how it ties in with what you've learned from you know following your footsteps of, of your mom in that line of work Right. It's it's really interesting because, you know, I grew up in London, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And when I grew up there, London was not very diverse at all. Right. Um, so I... It was really, it was a really interesting dissonance because in my home, it was very much like little Jamaica. It was very much Montego Bay inside my home and, and whenever I spent time with my family. But outside the home, there was like a marked difference of when you step outside, it's, it's a very different situation. Sure. And I think that, you know, if, if we're thinking about the parallels between my career and my mother's, I would say I, I try not to ever have any regrets because sometimes people say, I wonder what would have happened if you just, if you went into journalism mm. in university instead of, mm. you know, mm. health, right. uh, health sciences. Right. And I feel like, I don't know if I would be in the same spot. Maybe I'd be yeah. somewhere totally different. I might right. be Oprah or I may have been totally burnt out and, <laughs> right. you know, not right. been able to find a job and be doing something else. Sure. So I think everything I've done has led me to where I am, even if it wasn't directly related. Mm. And I think that looking at my mom, uh, who who raised us for most of my life as a single mother and mm -hmm. seeing the stability she was able to provide, but also knowing that life is not just about stability. Sure. Life, and, and I think about the sacrifices that both her and my father made mm -hmm. with coming to Canada and wanting to give us that quote unquote better life. Right. I, I look at it like they did not sacrifice that for me to just get a job that I can't stand because I'll get a pension at the end of it. Yeah. So I look at it like, you know, yes, I, I have touched that stability and I understand what that means, but even they now see the importance of me being able to do this, this kind of work that right. I'm doing uh, with telling stories and all of that. And, and it all, it almost feels like, even though they didn't understand it before, um, it feels like I'm paying homage to the, to the sacrifice they made because mm. every generation wants the next generation to do better and to right. be able to thrive and not just survive. So yes. I think that that's how I'm kind of doing that right. now. And, and you know, the other thing you talk about when you say stability, it's interesting because who's to say that had you followed that path, <laughs> right. and even if you landed that job with a career, with a pension, who's to say in this day and age that it wouldn't be somehow ripped away from you anyway? Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I, yeah, I mean, we're, 
we're seeing this now. Yeah. There's really no such thing as stability. Right. So, uh, you know, I think that even though, you know, my parents thought that things were supposed to look a certain way, I mm-hmm. think they're both really happy that I've been able to kind of create something for myself that doesn't really rely on, uh, you know, kind of another employer entity Mm-hmm. the way that they thought stability was because they're like, you, you always have an opinion. So somebody's going to want to hear it. So you'll be, you might be okay. <laughs> so, like, I think you're right. So yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, the other thing I think about in terms of, you know, when you, you mentioned uh, your home and, and uh, that inside yeah. the walls of your home, it was kind of like Jamaican and then you stepped outside and it, it's, you kind of like we're raised in that two world perspective, you know? For sure. And, yeah, for and, and, sure. The, and the other thing I think of is, is in terms of what you're doing as a, as a, as a freelancer and working your bio worker, you, you do some bio writing as well. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. the, you're in, in front of people as a, as a public speaker speaker, all of those things. Uh, but the work that you did, like you said, following in the footsteps of your mom, you had to have that, uh, that empath, em- empathy for people. Oh, for sure. So for sure. those that, I guess that's where I was going. Do you think that empathy oh, yeah. allows you to somehow bring something greater to the work that you do, especially in terms of writing for others and those kind of things? Oh, 100%, 100%, because I... I remember doing the work that I, and I've had a lot of interesting jobs in, in health, in the health field, Mm -hmm. Um, nothing really traditional as far as, you know, nursing or or anything specific like that, but some really interesting things, but working with adults with brain injury and developmental disability, it, you, you understand things in, in theory when you are going through school. And even if you do, you know, a little practicum or, you know, a co-op somewhere, but you really get a totally different understanding in practice when you are in it, you know, day after day working. And one of the biggest things that I learned and that I've had to see other people, um, other colleagues kind of unlearn or relearn is that everyone has their own voice and everyone has their own story. They may not have the, um, the confidence or they may not have kind of the understanding of how to go about telling their story, or they may not have the, the platform where somebody's going to listen to them. So a lot of the training and the work that I did in the health field was around ensuring that we don't speak for people who are able to find a way to speak for themselves and being able to empower people to share their stories and empower people to, to own their stories and own their lives in a way that maybe they felt was going to be taken away from them because of, uh, you know, whatever their health status was. Mm. And I think like when you mentioned the empathy, there's, there's empathy and being able to, to kind of see yourself in someone who has something to say. But mm. when you think about privilege as well and think about who gets listened to or mm. who's ignored, uh, that definitely has played into my writing, whether it's, uh, you know, me sharing a story of someone else. If I've done an interview with somebody and I'm kind of relaying a story that they've told me or like, you know, some of these things with bio writing or some other ghost writing things I've done where you don't really even know I have anything to do with it, but I'm trying to help someone else shape their story. It's encouraging people to be able to be confident in the fact that you have something to say. Somebody is going to want to hear it. Um, let me help you kind of shape that, but mm-hmm. I am not controlling that. So, right. yeah. So I think that the, now you're making me really think about that, but I, I can definitely see the parallels there with, you know, 
empowering the people I was working with mm. to be able to speak up for themselves and and doing the same in my writing and, and some of this other work too. Mm. It, it makes me reflect on the bigger picture. You talked about Martin Luther King and the Underground Railway and also you talked about the FBI and you know you were right to point out about how we have this idea of ourselves as you know oh we did such a great thing there but mm-hmm. there, there's also this other stuff that that was going on and still going on about racism oh, in Canada. Sure. And I for guess sure. maybe the FBI, you know, maybe there's probably good people in there, you know, oh, and maybe, yeah. maybe that was written by one, one of the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No. And, and it, it kind of goes to the point of, it may be somebody who who doesn't know the history, mm, right? And yeah. that's why it's so important that we know not just the glowing things yep, yep. about who we are as a people or a nation, but we yep. need to know the not so glowing things because those things all tell a story about where we've reached in, in actuality today. We can't ignore any of that. You're absolutely correct. And and it goes back to what you were just saying. It's so important to know the history, to know the stories so that mm-hmm. everyone is aware and that it doesn't get lost in the past and we don't repeat yes. things and educate mm-hmm. it on a broad level so that everyone is aware and we can all look forward to a better future. A hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, there's, there's a saying that you never know where you're going until you know where you've been. Mm. And I think that that's really important for Canada to reflect on when we're thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. Or if we're thinking about any of the things that we're seeing happening in the U.S. now um, and, and kind of understanding that we are, we are not immune and we have not ever been immune to, to these types of things. So yeah, we definitely need to understand that. So we know how we kind of forge a better path ahead. Right. Nicely said. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. And Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And, uh, you know, to share your thoughts about Martin Luther King as we celebrate to that. And, uh, of course, the other thing is uh, you mentioned this as well. Uh, February is going to be uh, Black History Month uh, in Canada as well. So uh, mm-hmm. great that we think about these things. And, uh, you know, be, it would be great to have you back on the show at a later date if you're willing. I would love to. I would love to. Anytime. This was All great. Right. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. That's writer, radio host, TV personality, public speaker, B. Kwame. And she uh, has been kind enough to join us on the show to talk about Martin Luther King Day. And as we celebrate that, it is Monday, January 18th. And also, uh, you can find her, if you want to find out more uh, about B, you can uh, get a hold of her at bkwame.com. That is B-E-E-Q-U-A-M-M-I-E.com. That's this part of the show. Please don't go away. We will be right Right back with more right after this right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Hey, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on our website, and you can also listen to uh, Moment of Truth uh, on our SoundCloud and other uh, streaming platforms at your leisure. So if you've missed one, you can go back and listen there. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome to Moment of Truth, Julia Drydick. She is the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End 
human trafficking. And there are two dates to keep in mind for uh, being aware of human trafficking. One is uh, February 22nd in Canada, and the other one is January 11th, which of course has passed, and that is, is the date that they use in the United States. You know, I'm almost tempted to say celebrate, but it's not a word we want to use to celebrate the day, to recognize the day is, is a more appropriate way of saying it. Julia, would you agree with that? And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And, and I absolutely agree. I think uh, February 22nd is a moment for us to really reflect and understand and think about the survivors and what human trafficking, um, what the effects mean to Canada. But it's also an opportunity for education and awareness, which mm. is so incredibly needed right now. Right. Now, in terms of that, what you just said about awareness and education, uh, people can go to your website, first of all, I guess, if they're wondering about how they might find out a little bit more information if they're interested. And that is the uh, Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking ca yes that's right and they can also um, check out our website we are also the operator of the canadian human trafficking hotline they can also access information about how to access our hotline and other tools and supports at uh, canadian human trafficking hotline.ca okay and there's a, i see a number here as well uh, 1-833-900-1010 that's right that is the toll-free uh, number for our full confidential 24-7 Canadian human trafficking hotline. So, Julie, what, what can you tell us about your, you know, the Canadian uh, Centre for to End Human Trafficking? How long has it, hit, has it been around? What is its mandate? Thanks so much for asking. So, the Centre was founded in 2016 with the goal of mobilizing public, nonprofit, and the private sectors, as well as government, to take meaningful action to end human trafficking in Canada. When we talk about human trafficking in Canada, we see two major types, and one is sex trafficking and the other is labor trafficking. You know, the, the, the name itself, a human trafficking, it, it sounds almost too nice for this, if you know what I'm saying. What, what is, the, what is the, the very thing that we are talking about um, when we say human trafficking? We are talking about what? So when we see human trafficking, we're talking about the exploitation of other human beings for profit. Mm. So when we talk about sex trafficking, this is when uh, someone is making someone provide commercial sexual services um, through the use of manipulation or lies, threats or violence. And it's where the trafficker actually takes the proceeds and controls the individual and forces them to do that. Um, with labor trafficking, it's similar um, in that we have people that are exploiting and forcing people into labor uh, to conduct labor for their own profit. And again, through manipulation, lies, threats, and violence. You know, when, when we talk about this in this day and age, I, I find it almost incomprehensible that this can be happening. But I know it is, and it's becoming a greater problem. How is that possible? So I think one of the challenges is that, um, you know, a lot of people think about human trafficking um, in terms of of smuggling or mm. being forcibly confined or chained up yeah. and the reality is it just doesn't look like that in Canada um, again it happens through um, threats through threats of violence um, but also keeping people socially isolated and physically isolated um, and really using emotional and psychological control um, to force them into doing things um, 
So one of the reasons it's happening right now is because um, unless you're looking for the right signs, it's really hard to see. Mm. Um, and it's not the kind of obvious uh, smuggling or, again, uh, forcible confinement that so many people assume that it looks like. Hmm. Uh, and what are the, how do we find out about the signs? What, what are those signs that people can hopefully recognize? That's a great question. Um, and usually it's a combination of a bunch of signs. When we look at sex trafficking, um, often uh, the signs can be a little bit subtle as first, at first. So you see people withdrawing from their friends and family. They might stop attending school or work, um, or they might not be coming home at night. Mm. Um, they might have sudden changes in their appearance, uh, like uh, expensive clothing or accessories or makeup. And there's usually someone new in their life um, that they're spending almost all of their time with, um, but where they're also not, uh, you know, necessarily telling people what it is they're really doing. You might see kind of canned or scripted answers to questions, secretive behavior, not telling them, telling people where they're going at night. Um, and then later on at the more, um, you know, uh, exploitative stages of, of trafficking, often um, victims will have their ID um, and their money taken away from them. Um, sometimes sex trafficking victims are branded uh, with tattoos of their trafficker's name or symbol. Mm. Um, and then we can also see visible signs of abuse. So mm. cuts, bruises, burns, but also extreme fatigue. Right. So many people think that this is an issue that happens in other countries or it's when migrants are being bought, brought into Canada mm. um, and again, being forced into the sex industry or forced to do labor. Um, really, um, from what we know, based on the existing data, this is a domestic issue. These are Canadian born uh, individuals and Canadian residents that are being exploited. Um, so it's happening to people um, who um, are dealing often with a bunch of different individual and social factors factors um, that uh, make them more easy to be exploited by traffickers. So it's people um, who uh, might be dealing with issues of poverty. Um, it's people, and we see a lot of youth coming out of the foster care system that mm -hmm. are being preyed upon by traffickers. Um, and then you also look at some of those systemic issues, individuals dealing with racism, lack of access to opportunity. Um, so really what traffickers look for is someone who has that emotional and social vulnerability where they can latch on, create that sense of trust and bond, and then use that to control them and exploit them and to get them to do things for their own gain. We have very limited statistics right now, and part of it, the major statistics that are out there are coming from law enforcement, and only a very small proportion of human trafficking victims want to talk to law enforcement in the first place or end up getting identified by law enforcement. Mm. Um, so based on what we know, according to uh, the existing Statistics Canada figures, um, there were just over 300 cases of human trafficking that were identified um, in 2019 by law enforcement. Um, but we know that that is only uh, the tip of the iceberg. Um, we're really looking forward. We're just in the final stages of actually analyzing and preparing to release the data from our first year of operating the hotline. Um, so that information will be coming, uh, coming out in the coming months. The major difference with labor trafficking is there you see it's largely migrants um, and migrant workers that are being exploited through labor trafficking. So labor trafficking is largely in Canada taking place um, through Canada's temporary foreign worker system. Um, so it's often temporary foreign workers coming into Canada um, and then experiencing either um, uh, 
abusive labor practices or labor trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the data shows that uh, you know the majority of human trafficking that we're documenting in Canada is sex trafficking. Um, but part of it too is that we might just not be reaching or being able to kind of fully understand the extent of labor trafficking in Canada. And part of it is because those migrant worker populations can be really hard to reach. Right. Is there is there a, a, a relationship between Canada and other countries in terms of this kind of thing? Um, so uh, largely what we see, especially around sex trafficking, is that it's happening in Canada. Um, it's happening um, across provinces. So we do know that human trafficking corridors exist where victims are being moved from city to city and across provinces as part of their exploitation. Um, but there we largely see that there's there's not a huge relationship in terms of people coming from other countries and being exploited in Canada or people coming from Canada and being exploited from other countries. Um, with labor trafficking, uh, we do see that it's it's largely um, those countries that are source countries for temporary foreign workers. Um, so um, uh, Mexico, the Caribbean, um, but also uh, the Philippines when it comes to domestic child care and domestic workers. Um, there, there's a more kind of a relationship with other countries in terms of a back and forth. Um, but when you're comparing what, what's happening in Canada to other countries, um, you know, if you were to make that comparison, I would say we're most similar to the United States. Things, again, are different because we don't have that direct border with Mexico and mm. ways of getting in and out of Canada are different and our cultures and communities are different and the way the sex industry operates is a little different. Mm. Um, but um, I would say that the U.S. is the most similar to us in terms of how we're seeing human trafficking play out across the country. Generally speaking, individuals 15 to 24 are the main targets for traffickers. Um, but that is not to say, so about 75% of all identified human trafficking survivors in Canada um, were under the age of 25. Mm. Um, but we also do see see uh, people being exploited later in their 20s and 30s, even in 40s and 50s. Um, But I also want to say that the impacts of being a survivor um, can last a very long time, if not um, a lifetime. Mm. Um, And that's not to say that people don't heal and recover. But in our work through the hotline, we often provide continuous support and referrals to individuals um, who are out of their trafficking um, experience, but are still in need of things like counseling and mental health supports, housing, employment supports, everything else to continue their journey to recovery. Right, of course. And and we're going to talk about that in, in a moment a little bit. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on our website at elmntfm.ca and you can also catch our previous uh, interviews and conversations on your favorite uh, uh, podcast streaming platforms. My guest is Julia Drydeck. She is the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking and that is, of course, what we're talking about. Now, there are two dates that are recognized uh, for the human trafficking where Day. It's February 22nd in Canada. It is January 11th in the United States. Uh, Julia, when we think about Awareness Day uh, on February 22nd, what is it that you would like people to be thinking about or be aware aware of? 
So one of the most important things for us is just busting those myths that, again, this is a foreign national issue or that it involves smuggling or forcible confinement. Mm. Um, That, to us, is one of the biggest challenges, because when people think that's what human trafficking looks like, that's what they look for. Mm. And it means that we're putting up blind spots spots Mm -hmm. in terms of really being able to identify where this is taking place and how this is taking place in our communities. We've got other research coming out shortly, understanding human trafficking corridors. But one of the things that we found is that, you know, where there's any form of population density, even small towns or big towns, where there's access to highway or an internet, um, and where there's anyone that's experiencing any vulnerability in their life, there you've got the the building blocks to enable human trafficking. This really is a Canada-wide issue. It's not an urban issue. Um, you know, it's happening uh, across all towns and all cities uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that's very unfortunate to hear. So how would you say we are doing or your center is doing, not specifically pointing it to you, uh, not that it should all fall on your shoulders, but that we are doing it in terms of helping people in, in this regard? So um, in our first year of operations, uh, we received over uh, 2,300 signals. So that's uh, calls or um, web chats or web forums from the general public. Um, and uh, one of the, the major things that we do as an organization and as a hotline is we provide those um, immediate localized referrals. Um, so we are trauma-informed and very trained. Um, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll receive any call from anyone. Um, it's also confidential. And we work with them in terms of where they're at, what their needs are, and what their goals are and we provide those referrals um you know that that is uh, great work to do um, and we've got incredible partnerships with uh, wonderful service delivery partners across the country who are providing um, services for victims and survivors um having said that uh you know it, it's not a perfect world mm-hmm. um, it can be really hard to find the right and the appropriate services um, mm-hmm. especially for victims and survivors in periods of crisis or who might have really complex challenges in their lives. Um, We also found that um, in the immediate phases following the first lockdown, and we'll be keeping our eyes out in terms of um, if there's any impacts taking place now in the second wave of of the COVID, um, that about one in five of all programs and services that we had available through our national referral directory to victims and survivors were closed during in May Mm. um, in April and May of 2020 Mm. due to the lockdowns. Right. So already we've got a, you know, a tough service um, environment to navigate where in many areas, there's just not enough emergency shelter. There's just not enough mental health and counseling services. And then uh, when you look at COVID and the impact that that had on temporarily closing some services, it just makes it that much harder to connect victims and survivors with the services that they need um, to be able to exit and recover. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if anyone calls the hotline, the very first thing we do is a safety check. Mm. The first thing we ask is, are you in a safe place to talk? Mm. And if they say no, then we work with them on safety planning. Right. And we find out how much time it is. We try and work with them on those steps to get them to a safe place. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's not just victims and survivors in that period of emergency or crisis calling us. We have 
friends, family members, um, other service providers, people working in schools, um, mm-hmm. and even law enforcement will contact right. us sometimes if they've identified a case and want to connect those victims and survivors to services and supports. Right. How are we doing in terms of identifying the per- perpetrators and trying to put an end to this? That is something that we still have a lot of work to do. And I say, I'd say it's a huge challenge for Canada. Mm. Um, going back to your point, yes, absolutely. Traffickers are looking for people with vulnerabilities that, that can, again, create those immediate bonds and then use that trust to hold over people's heads to force them into doing um, things uh, for their own gain. Um, but part of that, too, is that from a law enforcement perspective, it's really hard to be able to prove that. Um, a lot of this happens through, again, emotional and psychological manipulation. So, uh, you know, unlike other types of crimes where there's sometimes very clear evidence right. um, that is sometimes physical or more tangible, often uh, prosecuting traffickers relies on victim testimony. Um, and that can be a horribly re-traumatizing experience. Sure. Um, and there's a bunch of barriers for folks um, who, uh, you know, to participate in the, the criminal justice system, especially once they've exited. So we've got really low prosecution rates for traffickers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say it's still a real challenge across the country in terms of identifying um, and then also bringing to justice traffickers. Right. Um, so if there are, are people out there that have found themselves as a victim of this somehow, whether it be labor or, or in the, the sex trade that we've been talking about, and they might be listening to this, um, and they want to try and get some help. Um, what? How? How do they go about reaching out some somewhere somehow uh, to to you know start the start that rolling? So, um, if people are uh, looking for services and supports, again, the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline is here to help. Right. Um, uh, when people do want to call, I think it's important that people know that it's also completely confidential. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't try and also push anything or get people to do anything. Our goal isn't to get someone to specifically, you know, report to law enforcement. We don't have outcomes. We want to we want to meet people where they are and connect them to those services that they think would be most helpful. Um, so what we can do, we have a, a uh, national referral directory which is over 900 partners across canada that can provide services and supports to victims and survivors so we're able to leverage those partnerships and that database to again based on where they are physically mentally emotionally mm. uh, to then see what's available in their area and to connect them to those services mm. Okay. Now, uh, again, uh, the number, the the uh, the trafficking hotline we talked about was one eight three three nine hundred ten ten, and uh, you mentioned uh, I think a website or not the website, but you mentioned another site as well. Yeah. Um, so in addition to calling, and that doesn't, you know, sometimes calling isn't comfortable or yep. accessible for folks. Um, people can also, we have a web chat feature. Yes. Um, and that's accessible through our website at www.CanadianHumanTraffickingHotline.ca. Okay. Um, and again, it's completely confidential. Um, and throughout all of our website and programs, there's also a quick exit button. Um, so if people are in situations where they're not safe or they only have a short time to talk. Um, we do have safety features built into um, our website and online, but also we build that into how we engage with people um, to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to protect their safety um, as well as their confidentiality. 
Now, you said CanadianHumanTrafficking.ca? CanadianHumanTraffickingHotline.ca. CanadianHumanTraffickingHotline.ca, which is different from the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking.ca. It is, it is. Um, and part of it is that uh, the Centre's information is broader. It's about... Uh, you know, the general information tools, advocacy research, mm-hmm. um, whereas uh, we have a separate website for the hotline that really focuses in on those direct services um, for potential callers or for victims and survivors. Right. Okay. Uh, Julia, anything else you can think of that you feel is important to mention just before we finish up our conversation? Oh, I just want to thank you so much for having me on today. Um, We are so incredibly passionate about this issue. And I think the greater awareness we have, the closer we can get to real systems change uh, to to really eradicate human trafficking in Canada. Right. Well, let's hope we we do that. And uh, and and, you know, our thoughts go out to all those people that are maybe dealing with this in in so many ways. Uh, Julia, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show today. And uh, and and we look forward to perhaps having you back on the show at a later date uh, so we can get some updated information. As you mentioned, you're going to be uh, putting out some some new uh, information uh, later on. Well, I would love that and we'll definitely keep you posted. Okay. And uh, I'm going to allow you to just uh, let people know that uh, that hotline uh, website once again. Yeah, if people want to reach out, uh, the number of the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-833-900-1010. Or people can also reach us online at www.CanadianHumanTraffickingHotline.ca. Wonderful. That's the voice of Julia Drydick. She is the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, and it's been a pleasure to have her on the show to share this very vital and important information, and we look forward to having her back on Moment of Truth at a future date. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and of course, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And you can also listen to us on our website at elementfm.ca and also also on your favorite uh, podcast streaming platforms. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.